I'm not so sure you can tell by the giddiness in my voice, but we are about to dork out hardcore on rules. And nothing makes a lawyer happier than getting down to the nitty gritty of rules and thinking about the way that a rule can change the entire matrix by which we are living within. Of course, we're talking about bike racing. We're talking about bike racing rules. And the savvy listener will, of course, say, well, the rules of bike racing are amazingly simple. And it has very little impact about who's going to end up winning because that's watts and corners and heart rate and a bunch of other statistics that, you know, our coaches put through training peaks and we get an understanding of. No, no. Rules are critical. The rules of the sport are what make the sport and what make or create the competition by which the athletes are allowed to use that heart rate or allowed to use that wattage that they've got, their 10 second, 15 second, 20 minute power, whatever happens. Without the rules by which the sport is contained, there is no sport. So, for example, we're here with Adam Mills, and we're going to talk a lot about basketball and a lot about football, the American version of football, because it's Mills. That's what we talk about. It's what we've been talking about for 20 years now. But I want to start with one very simple soccer analogy. And yes, soccer, as in football to everybody else. There's a long story about how soccer is really an English word. And now we get penalized by people from England for using the word that they created to talk about the sport that they are good at. It was a 0-0 draw between England and the United States. So I'm going to let the jury there speak for itself about who is really better than the other one. But I digress. So in soccer, in that sport. In the early 90s, the game had become rife with dullness. That's not my words. Those are from Sky Sports in a February of 2018 article. It was just basically a game where the goalkeepers held on to the ball and made sure that play was as slow as possible. In 1992, the soccer federations got together and passed a very simple but profound rule called the back pass rule. In Days beforehand, a player could kick the ball back to the goalkeeper and the goalkeeper from the same team could just pick the ball up and hold it. It was a very standard maneuver by which teams would slow things down and kill momentum and really make the sport quite dull. The back pass rule made it so that when that same team pass from a player to a goalkeeper was made, the goalkeeper could no longer handle the ball with his or her hands. They had to play it with their feet. And suddenly challenges became ever present in goalkeepers who are not very good ball handlers in some for some teams, had to start handling the ball and had to start kicking the ball against much, much more aggressive and better players. The end result of that was to make the game more exciting, was to decrease the number of back passes, and when those back passes did happen, it was more of a challenge, it was more of a gameplay. So gameplay started going forward, it started being faster, it started being quicker, and now here we are in 2022 with soccer as one of the most popular sports in the world, one of the most well-watched sports in the world, 
and it doesn't at all look like what the game looked like in 1988 or in 1991 for that matter before the backpass rule was changed. What's the point? Why talk about soccer? Why talk about a backpass rule when we're looking at cycling? In cycling, we are at a kind of fluctuation point, especially in crit racing. We are at that point where we do have an audience, a growing audience, but we also have an audience that has a lot of draws on its attention. If you've got a race that is stopped, for example, because it was neutralized because of a crash, you know, you'll lose those casual fans. People will walk away from the race and go back to the bar that they were at, and maybe they come back out, maybe they don't, but they come back out after having another drink with this taste in their mouth that, like, this is a sport that can just be stopped for any number of reasons, and I don't really understand it, and it's not really worth my time to learn more about. Or if you've got a more hardcore fan who's sitting there watching it on, you know, outside TV, they'll turn it off if the race just stops for 20, 30 minutes, or if it's known to be a race that will stop periodically, you'll lose fans. And without fans, the sport doesn't have the marketing power or just the interest in general to get sponsors and to get organizations to put money behind it. We need people to watch the sport. We need the sport to be exciting in order to get people to watch it and keep people watching it. Minor rule changes can make or break cycling. The sad fact is that most of us who are competing in this sport, and in fact, who are listening to this podcast right now, probably can tell you more about the offside rule in soccer or icing in hockey or holding in football or the infield fly rule in baseball than they can about what is or what is not an appropriate use of a free lap. What is an authorized mechanical? What is not an authorized mechanical? All of these things are as if you were speaking French to somebody like me from Chicago who is not allowed to even remotely pronounce French words. And I've heard that from Parisians who've just politely said, no, 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 no. Just, just speak English. I'll figure it out. My name is Rob Kelly. This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. WideAnglePodium.com is our home. Go there, find out about the full bevy of shows that we have available from Cyclocross Radio to the Slow Ride Podcast to the Grodio and Nowhere Fast, which is real bike racing with fake bikes. I think that's their catchphrase. I have to look that up. I'm sorry, Zach. Guys, I'll do better next time. WineAnglePodium.com. We are a content creator-driven effort. We would really appreciate it. In fact, how we keep the lights on is through your generosity. So go to the website, donate, become a subscriber, and help support this effort. As we know with a lot that's happened with outside and cycling tips and a lot of the other media in this sport, it's shrinking. And the independence of the wide angle podium is what makes it special. And we are only capable of remaining financially independent because you, the listeners, help us do that. So please go donate, subscribe, tweet about it. I don't know if tweeting about it's a really good word. Toot about it if you're on to Mastodon. 
follow us on Instagram, all of that fun stuff. Just let people know who we are, what we're doing, and that you support us. We are brought to you this week by our friends at Source Endurance. We've got Adam Mills on the show, the head coach from Source Endurance. So that's basically like a giant testimonial for him right there. Source-e.net. Who are these folks? They are the premier source for endurance coaching on the internet today. They've got all sorts of services ready for you, whether it's nutrition, endurance, triathlon, running, bike racing, crit racing, cyclocross, gravel racing, gravel camps, all of it. Source Endurance has opportunities for you to become a better bike racer and become a better version of yourself. Go to the website source-e.net. Use the promo code Criterium Nation when you find what you're looking for and you can get $50 off your first month of coaching. So let's talk a little bit about what we've got here. We've got Adam Mills. We've got him for eh, right around an hour. And he's going to be talking about his ideas for how little rule changes can make a huge difference in bike racing. As a note, uh, just want to let you know that this is probably a little bit more edited than you would normally expect for an episode. In the past, we've you know, Adam and I are working on how to improve the audio quality for his audio for reasons that I'm not 100% sure of. It does have a tendency of falling off here and there. We've got him a new microphone. We're working on it. And just so that you guys all know, I cut out some chunks that were just not something that you could hear by virtue of the fact that his audio would drop. I don't know what is going on, but I promise you I'm going to find out more and I'm going to figure it out. The only problem is I never really know how good or bad something is until I get it into my version of Hindenburg and I do all the editing. So I apologize in advance if there's a couple of spots that sound like they've been edited because they have been. Regardless. We've got Adam Mills, we're talking rules, and we're doing that right now. So, Adam Mills, head coach, Source Endurance, I got a bone to pick with you first before we get into this episode. I recently was the recipient of an email talking about winter training and how Source Endurance can help you with your winter training. And one of your coaches, Taylor, who's an incredible coach, wrote this great article about winter training. But for reasons that are mind-boggling to me, the photo that led that article was Stan. How do we get a San Diego-based bike rider who maybe once saw cold weather in her life as the picture person for winter training, as opposed to, I don't know, say somebody from Chicago. That athlete was actually at, a, at an event and it was snowing in the winter. I've always, I've always had this, uh, this thing where if you know the photographers and you know a great place for a photo to be taken, like burn that match and get a good photo. That's typically why I attack right when I cross in front of the announcer, like with Brad or with Frankie Andreo. I like to attack right there so that everybody knows exactly who I am. 
the attack will likely fail, but at least I get my name called out. I mean, I, I tell athletes like it's a, it's a goal. Bike racing is a game of make sure you accomplish your goals. And if that's your goal, then, you know, go for it. So you are here because you're really, really good at understanding rules and thinking deep about the sport. And we are here to talk about the rules of criterium racing and some changes that we think can be made to make things better. Before we get into that specific, like the nitty gritty, I wanted to talk about why we do this. It's more of an esoteric question and it is more of my therapy with Adam Mills question than it is, you know, specific to amending the way that the free lap rule works. But it's like, why do we do this? Why do we get involved in this sport? You recently were speaking at the USA Cycling Coaches Summit in Colorado Springs, teaching the level two training. You know, the other humans that were there with you, these are intellectual, articulate, intelligent, hardworking people, like all of them. And we've got race directors who bust their butts. We've got team directors and like everybody top to bottom is just absolutely burying themselves for the accomplishment of the goal of bike racing. Why? You know, it's not, I am not getting Tom Brady level salaries from bike racing, but yet we're putting in Tom Brady level efforts and we are Tom Brady level intelligence. Why are we doing this? Yeah, I think because people like to compete and they like to compete at the highest level that they can. And this is a, it's a sport. I mean, it's an Olympic sport and a lot of people can access cycling. And, and at the end of the day, I think it's just something people love to do. There's not a lot of sports out there where you get to fly around a corner or down a road at 30 miles an hour under your own power. You know, speed is fun. It's a good time. And if you can make a little bit of money doing it or you can make a living doing it, even better. If if you can do this physical activity that rewards all the training and, and work you've done back at home, and you will also take the place of like a weekend adventure. And that's a win for everybody. Let's talk about the way that crit racing ran this year in 2022. You know, obviously at this time last year, we were looking at the implosion or the after effects of the implosion of USA crits. And we were sitting here thinking there may never be another national level criterium series. There had been ones preceding it, the NCC, the NRC. USA Crits was around for 14 or 15 years before it eventually folded. The American Criterium Cup jumped in in 2022 and it launched, you know, its inaugural season. It felt like it was put together, you know, with good wishes and hopes and dreams and a lot of duct tape at some points in times. But by the end of the season, it got accomplished what it needed to get accomplished. It linked 10 races throughout the course of the year. And it brought forward a competition as much as we can say that there was a competition throughout the course of the year. I know, you know, everybody else in the world knows there are more than one way to run a league or a broad scope competition. Is it valuable? Let's start with that. Is it valuable in crit racing for us to even have a national 
criterium series as opposed to something more akin to like the English Premier League where it's kind of like a calendar of events? That I don't have an answer for because I'm not particularly familiar with the, with the Premier League. Uh, I think at the very least, we should have a, a calendar of events and a national championship, uh, which, which we already have, if nothing else. Or maybe the series is just a way to loosely connect all these races so that you get the same high-level athletes coming to all the high-level races, um, which kind of leads me into my first, first uh, talking point. I'm going to you know, hijack the whole narrative of the story is that one, you, if you have these, these series or this, this like season of events, right. You get to create a narrative or there should be a media creating a narrative that will entice consumers to watch it. Right. Or just fans. At the end of the day, sporting events that are successful or sporting leagues, professional sports that are successful are successful because they are entertaining. When you turn on the TV or, or whatever, hit your streaming streaming stick or whatever at home, it's like you have a choice between whether to watch House of Dragon or The Rings of Power or turn on a Criterion menu. Um, in that respect, I think it's a good idea for those evening crits, even though I personally don't like them. And I think that's what the goal is for all those the league or, or the series or whatever you want to call it. They, they want to create this, this narrative or even stoke the rivalry of teams. Uh, and that's fun to watch, I admit. Rivalries are fun. There's this American theory, and I don't know if bike racing can fit its way into this American theory of sport, where you have a regular season and then a playoff in which you culminate ultimately with a single winner. Uh, whether it be a team or an individual, you have this single person. I mean, like the American boy and girl or whatever dream has always been bottom of the ninth, two outs, bases loaded sort of situation, game seven of the World Series. Or, you know, the seventh game of the NBA playoffs and you're the guy at the foul line or the woman at the foul line who's got to make the big shot. That's American theory of sport. And when we confront a, a, a style of, of, I don't know, entertainment or sports that doesn't lend itself to that, I feel like we struggle. And we struggle because we're trying to force a narrative that may or may not exist. So you don't, you know, you're not a big fan of the English Premier League. I am. But... You know, uh, this is going to be a tug of war constantly between NBA and some other sport during this entire discussion. And we'll get to the NBA shortly. But, you know, with the English Premier League, it's it's a calendar of competitions between different teams within the league. Whoever ends up with the most points wins. There's no playoff. Like, end of story. Like, you win a game, you get three points, you tie or draw, as they call it in England. You get one point, you lose, you get nothing the team that ends up at the end of the season with the most wins. And that seems to work really fine for them. And with cycling, we've created this American Criterium Cup or a host of other series that have individual and team competitions based on points for where you finish. 
And the person who wins at the end of the year is the one who's accrued the most points. I don't know if that is the best way to do it. Whether doing an individual competition at all makes any sense with American crit racing, or if it should just be a team competition. I mean, in essence, the man or the woman who gets to the finishing line first only gets to the finishing line because of his or her team. Unless, of course, you're Luke Lamperde and you don't need a team in order to win two national championships in a row. Do you think that given kind of the economics of our teams and the nature of our riders having full-time jobs for the most part and doing this as a weekend thing, you know, that having the individual competition based on points is the better way to do it? Yeah, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't thought about like the cultural and sporting aspect of, of the organization of, of an overall system or of just winning the, you know, winning a one day or winning one day at a time. Even when you go back and look at, like you listen to NFL post, post, post game uh, press conferences and NBA ones too. The athletes talk about lot of things and at some point they always say like one day at a time one game at a time or something like that so my yeah I, i'm mostly thinking about that I figure a lot of that stuff's just made in my mind is made to increase the drama increase the people you're, you're trying to get like long-term fans well something that i think we can both agree on is the and the the fact that we need endemic teams Teams that don't go away, you know, because they lose a sponsor or they they lose a team director. There is no Chicago Cubs of bike racing. Legion of Los Angeles is obviously trying to build something like that, you know, with the Miami Blazers and Legion and I think it's Texas Outlaws. There are a variety of teams that are trying to create a, a, a focal point that is around a, a city or something like that. You've got a team like Project Echelon that's building a focal point around veterans and supporting veterans as opposed to being the team from Wisconsin. And you've got ButcherBox, which is high performance and healthy living sort of thing. Like you've got these teams that are building kind of a, we are bigger than our title sponsor. We are bigger than what is happening in 2022 or 2023. In, in doing research for the recent article that we posted, you know, I had to go back to the beginning of the Chicago Cubs when they were the Chicago White Stockings, which is awful to think about the fact that the Cubs and the Sox could have been the same organization at one point in time. But like watching the, the twists and turns of something that started in the mid-1880s to present and then thinking about bike racing and being like, we're trying to hyper accelerate a hundred years worth of sporting development by creating the NCL or the CRT, you know, any of these various different leagues. What is the foundational challenge? Before we get to specifics, what is the hardest thing for crit racing in the United States right now that needs to be resolved before we can worry about anything else? I mean, you got to get people to watch first and foremost. You need, you need fans to do everything. If no one's watching it, then no one cares. Um, 
cycling just needs more people to watch and you need to connect with more fans at its core. The stuff that kind of we were going we're gonna to talk about today is just what I think can help make that happen. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about the, the specific details of things that can help connect better with fans. Because I think that you are not going to get more people coming to your bike race if you are in Salt Lake City or in Anniston, Alabama or in Harlem, New York, than you already have. You know, you are not going to get fans of bike racing coming from Atlanta just to watch your competition in Salt Lake City. Well, not today, no. But people do travel to watch their favorite sporting teams. Yeah, I was recently in London, and I happened to be in London when the Saints were there playing football. And London was this wonderful, amazing experience, and then you get towards Saturday and Sunday, and all of a sudden you're just like, who are all these Saints fans, and what are they doing here? And they are clearly not locals because they are hanging out at Trafalgar Square and, you know, Piccadilly, and they're doing all the typical touristy things. These human beings traveled from one point to another to watch their sport. That's where we want to go. How do we start that process by getting people engaged from their own couches? Thinking about this from trying to get the sport to work better for, for the fans, right? And the first thing I'll preface it with is that the people that matter, they need to go and read the Rafa Roadmap. It's a 10-part thing. It's like chapters. It takes forever to read. They wrote it before the pandemic hits. So some of it probably doesn't, ex- you know, doesn't apply, but it gives you a really good basis and understanding about like how does sport work and what makes it what makes fans stick around and how do you create fan bases, right? That's part one. So part two is that every professional sport and, and even like collegiate sport, every, every sport it seems like except for cycling to a large degree, they have rules committees where every year these committees meet at the end of the year, usually at the end of the season, and they talk about like, okay, what are some rules that would help this game work better or help this, this sport work better? Or how can we change the way we enforce existing rules? Uh, if anyone, so my, my parents don't like watching the NBA because they say it's just a bunch of like ground and pound type of basketball. We throw down low, everybody like throws elbows, beats each other's up, and then, you know, shoot from close. Like that was true in the early 90s when Jordan came and took flight and elevated the NBA. But over the years, some, some nuance changed, nuance changes in the rules of, of the professional basketball. I mean, the sport doesn't look anything like it did but uh, those chain, rule changes over time matter. The NFL is another great example. Go watch like a 1980s greatest hits video. And it's none of those hits are legal anymore because things like let's keep our best players injury free in the game because people like to watch the best players. It's like that's a big deal. Uh, and I think cycling can benefit a lot by having a rules committee that recommends changes for things like keeping the keeping the races moving, keeping, you know, keeping them more safe. Well, let's, let's go with, what are we, what's the goals of these rules? My, my idea with these rules changes is strictly to entice fans to keep watching and to not turn the races off in frustration, which uh, I admit I've done 
when there's numerous stoppages or you find out like, oh, the race is delayed 35 minutes because of, you know, fill in the blank. So we're trying to keep fans engaged and we're trying to like improve the quality of the entertainment while also making it more safe. So this year in the American Criterium Cup, there were 19 races. There would have been 20, but Rochester was canceled after the seventh lap because of a thunderstorm. Of the 19 races, so that's 10 women's races, nine men's races, 20% of the races featured neutralizations that stopped the race from happening. Two on the women's side, two on the men's side. So it's, it's perfectly equal and perfectly fair. If Harlem had been televised, you would have seen in the men's race a 20-minute gap where nothing happened. People will turn that off. Absolutely. How do we stop it? So you're talking about safety. I think a number of things. I think with the, uh, if you look at the history of the sport, say back in maybe 10 years ago, it was rare to have a race build as a pro one, a pro am, like pro category one race as under 90 minutes. They were, they were 90 minutes. And that was the number that's what everyone watched. And I think, so now a lot of them are 60 for a lot of reasons. I don't, the reason is probably different from every promoter and that's fine. I don't think 60 minutes at an elite level is long enough to have a high level I think anything with the term pro uh, or the P on the marquee has should be a minimum of 90 minutes recommended 80 kilometers. For those that say, oh, well, that's too long. No one paid attention. It's like, you know, a football game, TV, TV coverage for an NFL football game or a college football game is over two and a half hours. An 80 kilometer criterion is a little under two hours. So. I think we've shown from that stat, we've shown that the public will pay attention to it. But I think having it be 90 minutes, that makes it 50% longer, 50% more fatigue, 50% more effort than what's currently there. Uh, makes people not want to just go fast and, and shove their way into where they want to be. And I think at 60 minutes, it becomes an issue. There's, there's a very large component of tolerable risk. Talk about the psychology of it. So this is critical. Like when you are standing on the start line and you are looking at a 60 minute crit or you're looking at a 90 minute crit and you're thinking about the first 15 to 20 minutes of the race, talk about the psychology of the risks, the level of effort, all of the calculations that you are putting in for those first you know, let's say quarter of the race when it's a 60 minute versus a 90 minute and how that will factor in towards safety. It's just, it's just risk management, judging risk versus reward. If you know that one team's going to take the head of the race as soon as they can, then you're going to race really hard to make sure that doesn't happen. Because if the race is 60 minutes, you can ride really hard for 60 minutes. If it's 90 minutes, now you're getting to a point where you almost dare that team to do it and you're okay with it because the odds of them being able to ride that hard for 90 minutes is pretty low. And there's, there's a lot of like human physiology things you can drag into the mix on this, but 90 minutes is hard. It's a lot harder than 60. It's obviously 50% longer, but it just makes you, it makes the race the race a little bit different and race more to conserve a little bit at the beginning, but, but you're just managing risk. a little bit. Um, and many people don't want to, dive the corners for, you know, 45th spot. 
I think that's the first first step is to make the race long. What about the field size itself? We're talking about things right here at the outset of the race. You know, you look at Armed Forces, the second day of it, Clarendon, 500 corners. It's a 100-kilometer race. It's a kilometer-long course. It has five corners during it. It's the race of 500 corners. You have 135 men starting that race. How many of those men who are lining up are out of contention before the whistle even goes? I mean, it depends who's there. If you're looking at 2022 races, I would say 135 starters. There are 20 people that can. So now you're getting into, it says pro one on the, on the marquee. So if you have a category one light on your license or a pro on your license, like you qualified to be able, you got a qualification to enter that race. And at that point, whatever is deemed the field size is the field size. So I don't, I don't, I don't think that's bad. I don't think having 130 people is a bad idea because you still, you still need racers. Now, we've got a system where if you're a Cat 1, you, in theory, have the capacity to hack it at any Cat 1 race. But when you look at Blue Dome or the Arts District in Tulsa, like those races, that's next level stuff. Those aren't just your typical Cat 1 race. That's that's an elite level. Promoters can have their races be invite. I mean, Redlands is a pro-am race. It's invite. So that's that's on the promoter end. And if you don't want to do that because you just want people to fill your race, like that's cool. They're still category ones. And so if you want to get into the nuance of what makes a one-on-one or a good one or a bad one, like there's still ones. Just like you have NBA players and NFL players that aren't good or they're not. Well, they're still great. They're not able to compete with the best. And, and that's okay. Um, but I think if it says P1 and you've met that, you know, if you want to get into that, then you're looking at invites and you're looking at totally restructuring USA Cycling's uh, license protocols, which that's not the point of, of what I want to talk about here. That's, that's digging a really big hole. Because <laughs> we could talk about rankings all day, because I love the idea of artificially ranking people based on, I don't know, subjective thought processes of mine. Right. And how many Instagram followers they have. You should definitely rank them. So what, what's next? You know, what is the next thing that we need to talk about? Okay. So in the, in the interest of safety, um, that's my, that's my primary goals. I think if you make the race more safe and less like violent and people will, will race more often and people will be more inclined to watch the races. And the example I got, which is something we heard at the USA cycling summit last week, was a story about head injuries in this lacrosse league. And it turns out that that this particular league had a lot more cross-checking than the others. And as a result of this cross-checking, it led to more head injuries. So you're trying to reduce head injuries. They changed the rules a little bit. And all of a sudden, there's not near as much cross-checking. And bam, head injuries went way down too, right? So so we're talking about a, a some couple of rule changes that made the sport a lot safer for everybody. And that's, um, that's kind of what I'm, what I'm wanting to go towards. And the first thing that I think a lot of people have complaints about, including myself, is it all starts with the officials, right? There's, there's a lot of stuff put on the riders. The riders should do this. They should do that, you know, on and on and on. But ultimately, the way cycling is, offici- is officiated right now, it's very soft officiating. Like, you, we, we sat there in Tulsa, and we watched a rider 
you know, sit the bench for a few laps and jump back in and was allowed to jump back in. And then they were listed at the end as being like multiple laps down. Why wasn't that rider, why one, why was that rider allowed back in the race when they were going to be listed as a few laps down? And two, why were they allowed to stay in the race when the officials in the pre-race uh, announcements say, I will pull riders out of contention? I would call being two laps down out of contention. Yet that athlete stayed in the race and sprinted in the field sprint and got like seventh or eighth or something. Like that's, and, and there's a lot more that went into it. So I'm definitely out of context. I'm just looking at like strict facts. I'm kind of cherry picking a little bit to make the point. I admit that, but that needs to not happen. So, because had that rider crashed, now you crash for a second time or whatever, and you knock down a bunch of athletes who are still racing to actually win that are in contention. So one, I think the officials need to be empowered to enforce the rules during the race and actually provide a hard, a hard stop on some of the stuff that the riders are doing. And a, and a great point is, is the example I just said. The, the officials should be uh, consistent as far as who's officiating these like these American Crit Cup races or this like national level calendar. So you should have the same eight officials going to all the races. Because those officials will be more consistent and they're going to be higher quality and they're going to be better able to manage those races. Because once the race starts, it's the official's race, right? Uh, I think the race, the official should also be able to use video playback in the production booth because they're all, a lot of these races are video, video broadcast. So let's use that. Let's use this technology to, you know, call people on, on what they're doing and to issue fines and to issue relegations. Or even better, this came from um, Justin Williams, who him and I were talking a long time ago. I thought it was a great idea is officials should be on motos in the race. And if they see some shenanigans happening or just some racer being a complete a-hole, like pull them right then and there. Pull over, you're out of the race. Red card or whatever you want to call it. Like get out of the race, you're endangering riders. And I think that will go a long way in and of itself and just having these riders be more safe uh, or, or at least maybe adding a different calculus to advantage, disadvantage or, or risk management. With the moto official that works for certain parts of the field. Cause you know, in a 135 person field, if you're a single file, that's going to stretch a block to block sort of thing. So you're not going to be able to see what's happening in the middle. Right. And I, and I know like everything's going to have, nothing's going to be perfect. I'm, I'm saying like, let's make it more safe. I say, I mean, at the end of the day, you're riding way too close to way too many people going way too fast. You can't, you can't make it, you can't make it safe. You can make it more safe. You can't see everything. When you're a bike racer in a race, nobody's with, I'm going to I'm going to caveat this. Nobody's intentionally trying to ride recklessly. If there is somebody who's in your race who is actually intentionally trying to ride recklessly, they have no business being in your race. And that's for the moto officials yank them. Because if you're endangering others just to move up, or because you want a spot behind a lead out train and you're just willing to shoulder people to, to get it, like that's that's against the rules. You know, there there is a point in time when you have to accept your position as your position. You know, like you and I have talked about the great the late great Steve Tilford and how, you know, when UHC was at its pinnacle, Tilford was you know, in those races and he was ex excited when UHC would come to the front because it was just like, okay, I'm 10th, 
right now I'm, I'm going to probably be 10th at the end of the race, but it's going to be safe. The speed's going to be elevated to the point where you're not going to move. You know, that's your position. You're locked in. What's the next thing, you know, that we need to focus on to get us to the point where riders are like, this is good. I'm happy. The next thing that I, that I would say we should talk about is the, utter abuse and shit show of the free lap award. I think I counted one race. This was like the year the pandemic hit the first race of the year and there was a crash. I counted like 16 people. They stopped the race and like 16 people just rolled back. It is like blatant abuse. My desire is to make it so that free laps are not some, are not, are not choice one. They're like last resort. There's a lot. There's a lot. I thought about this, but I think free laps should end at halfway into the race. It closes. I mean, so people say, well, what about flats? Okay, well, tubeless tires aren't flatting in criterions. Rarely. Very, very rarely. If you're if you're riding in a pro one race and you're on tubulars, like tubular advancement stopped in like 1994. That's that's 18 years ago. Like the technology in your tires can vote and buy cigarettes. Right. Um, if you're riding clinchers, you're better off, but that's also no one's making high-end wheels that are intended for tubes or tubulars. I mean, Envy, Envy still has their molds for tubular wheels. Like you have to ask for it and you have to beg them and then you have to pay an upcharge to get them to even spend the time to pull those molds out of the top of the closet that no one ever looks in dust them off, make sure they work and make you a wheel. And I know that because I've been in, I've been in there, I've taken their tour and that's kind of what they said in, in a very much nicer perspective. But, so yeah, so I think free laps should end at halfway. I think that will change the risk and reward and, and calculus that riders have. And I think there will be hiccups. To that. People will expect neutral laps with like seven to go, but you know what? Like be smarter. If someone does fall, like you're chasing, and that's, that's going to have to just be something you do. Um, I think the things that, that just, or the things that qualify as a mechanical needs to absolutely be codified. I saw this last year, I saw riders going into the pit and taking free laps for, there was a shoe. There was like my battery died. There was like some other, there's like a helmet strap was something it's like those aren't those need to be whatever whatever takes you to the pit it needs to be codified of what qualifies as and it needs to be laid out there it can't it cannot be official you know official cannot decide on it because then the rider puts the official in a terrible situation of like is this gonna fly am i gonna get a free lap for this or are you gonna end my race so I'm going to stop you right there because I remember the shoe thing really distinctly. That was Salt Lake City. And it was something that really kind of got in my mind. And I, I was just like, how, how is this a mechanical? And so I did ask an official uh, and, and he quoted the rules, 
A puncture caused by the tire coming off due to inadequate gluing is not a mechanical accident, nor is a malfunction due to misassembly, maladjustment, dead or insufficiently charged batteries or insufficiently tightened bolts, for example. A broken toe strap, so this shows you exactly how old these rules are, or a cleat is a mishap. So if you break your shoe to the point where you've broken the cleat, it is considered a mishap. A worn or misadjusted cleat or toe strap is not. If more than one toe strap is used on a pedal, Jesus, I'm not going to read the rest of that. Um, This is not track racing. So, but it says toe strap. It's not saying if your laces came untied on your shoe. Name me a sport where they stopped the sport because someone's shoe came untied. I'm wondering like about the NBA. Like I know that NFL, NFL games, for example, that shoes come off all the time and players are ushered off and... There are people who are on the sidelines whose job literally is to put your shoe back on for you. They might they might pause the game in between a play or at the next dead ball, but you do not they do not stop the game for you to put your shoe back on. So yeah, I think that needs to be codified, and I think the things that you should take should be able to take a free lap for need to be um, everyone needs to know what they are before the race starts. And I also think if you have so there's a rule right now that says something like if you come out and take a mechanical, you're put back in the Peloton where you went in or, or something to that effect. Um, that rule is some bullshit. And I think if you take a free lap, you're put in the back. You don't, you don't get to begin leaving the pit until the Peloton is almost completely past the pit. So you have still have to chase a little bit, only now you have a chance. Because again, I'm trying to keep people from actually using a free lap. Um, I think it detracts a lot from the race when you start throwing people 10 and 20 at a time into the race at the front of the race. Because as the race progresses, because of the strategic and tactical moves that have been happening that whole the whole race up to that point, like people are in position, they're out of position, you're maneuvering assets into position to do different things, or you've earned your spot the race is so hard that no one has the ability to challenge you for the wheel. But when you throw these people in that have had a lap or two off, and it does benefit you to take a lap off. You take you take the right lap off on Pride Baby Hill and Tulsa, and you can stay in that entire race. If you get one lap, you can just sit out and jump back in the next one. Like it's very possible. And at the elite level, those athletes, men and women, they all know how to take a free lap. And that's that's not fair to everybody else. So that's what we're trying to do. So you get thrown in in the back, still have to chase a little bit. You could probably get on. If you can't get on and you get thrown in the back, like you shouldn't be in that race anyway, and that's okay. Yeah, I've, I've always noticed that, like in um, like in a world tour race, how simple it is for these riders to stop, change a wheel, get back, and then get back into the race. I know there's a certain degree of chicanery that happens with the you know, caravan of cars and you've got other riders who are pacing you back on and things like that. But like, it looks amazingly easy -er for them than it does for me doing it in a crit when I've crashed, you know, like I crashed it, I crashed at the, the hill this year and the pit is located literally at the bottom of the hill into the little rise towards the finishing line. And like, I got reinserted and, you know, I lit every single match that I had left just to get back into that group. Yeah, the the pit should be in the, the slowest part of the course. 
So on the hill, it should be on the exit of turn. Okay, so let's go there. Let's go there with course design, because that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. The slowest part of the hill, or the slowest part of the course. It's actually turn three. Which would be a very interesting place to put the, the pit, because it's the narrowest part of that particular course. And also, it's the furthest away from the start-finish line. The officials, yeah. So that's, and that's, that's a whole different ball of wax, too. Like Joe Martin Criterium has two pits, one at the bottom hill, one at the top hill. And I've always told when I've directed teams there, no matter what, never go to the bottom of the hill. Never. Like you ride your flat to the top of the hill and you use that. Because the peloton's going so much slower. I also, I also think with the pit, you should get the free lap rule should be enforced as a free lap, not like show up and you know take two laps to figure it out and then get pushed back in. Sort of thing. Um, I think that would be made a lot easier with the other rules we talked about uh, because there wouldn't be near as many people checking or going to the going to the pit, basically. I think you should only get one trip to the pit per race. You decide to take that free lap on lap two when there's a crash and 17 people just are like, ah, oh, this is this is this is easy. I'm just gonna take a free lap right here. Like that's great. What happens in 20 minutes when that happens again? Um, and that, that would be hard to enforce. I admit that. I don't really know how you do that. And I'm not worried about how to enforce it because that's not the point. It's, it's- so what what outside of the pit do we need to think of also? We talked about this in the USA Cycling at the coaches clinic. And the problem is that the assessment takes a lot of time. But I personally think that looking at like TBI protocols, like traumatic brain injury, so if you hit your head, you should absolutely not be allowed back. Um, if your helmet has any kind of scuff on it, it should be out. No questions. Like that's not even something to discuss at that point. I think if you hit your head and you're out of that race, you should should not be allowed in a bike race again until at least a week later. So some sort of concussion protocol or TBI protocol. Um, there's too many situations where athletes have crashed on like a Friday and then they've fallen again on a Sunday. And then they fall again the next week. And then they fall again the next week. So now you've had three, that four crashes in under a month at this point. And that's, that's really dangerous. That needs to not happen. I mean, you are the reason why I did not race on day two and three at Tulsa. You know, I crashed, went over the bike, hit my head, cracked the helmet, but I felt that I was fine, even though I knew that I had dusted, you know, broken up my helmet and I knew that I could potentially have a concussion. I actually said that to the EMTs. They're like, are you okay? And I'm sitting there looking at my helmet and I'm going, I'm trying to figure out if I have a a concussion. And their response was, okay, cool. And they walked away from me. They're not trained. No, they're not. But like you stopped me and said, you are done. And I hated you for it. Yeah. I hated you for it, but you were right. That's just like, (laughs) Number 58 on the list. So, but your wife adores me for it. So take that. Yes. Yes. And she made my boss talk to her on the phone after observing me that evening to figure out if I was okay. And my boss's response was, he's never looked smarter. It's true. So there is that. Kendall Ryan and Alexis Ryan hit their heads at Momentum Indy this year in the final corner. They, they sat out the next day. 
I don't think Kendall and, and Alexis ended up racing the rest of the year. You know, I, you, there's a lot of situations where people will go down, they will break their helmet and they'll try to jump back in. I mean, Alfredo Rodriguez broke his collarbone and they were talking about him coming back two weeks later. I was like, slow your roll. You know, like if you get hurt and especially if you hurt your brain, you got to stop it. You got to slow down. You got to think. I mean, you have been forefront in my mind on MIPS and proper helmet design. Go ahead and tell us about that for a second, because I know you've written articles about it. Oh, the whole MIPS deal? That's that's a universe. It's Virginia Tech. They have a website. They use their own protocol. So they're third party, not affiliated. I think they're they're buying the helmets and rationing them, basically. Um, so they don't owe anybody anything. And if you look at their ranking, like MIPS helmets dominate the top on their own testing. So there's no downside. It might be $5 more helmet, but you know what costs a lot more than $5 is an ICU visit at $2,000 an hour. Okay, back to rules, back to rules. What else do we need to talk about here? Um, that's all the stuff on my short list. Mostly elevating the power and the quality of the officials, I think will go a long way and, and what they're allowed to do and how they're allowed to enforce it. I think that will go a long way. I mean, we can, every, every, all those videos we all saw on the internet, that was, that was the final step in what had been escalating for who knows how long. But if there is an official that I could see it on a video or an official that I could see it in real life, I mean, maybe they can take care of that way earlier. You're you're talking about Salt Lake City and the in the fight. And anything and everything. There's 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 things that happen on teams that you didn't even know was happening in other races, right? It's just the one that the one that gets goes viral is the one everyone sees. Um, and this concept that I hear that kind of stuff used to happen all the time. It did not happen all the time. It happened a couple times. And you heard about it. Uh, it is not normal. Like violence at sporting events between athletes is not a normal thing. Nor should it be tolerated. Even if it was normal 20 years ago, that's 20 years ago. We live in a brave new world now where we don't have to tolerate exactly what happened in our parents' generations or when we were younger. Yeah. I mean, when my when my parents were my were were in high school, like they used to walk to school in the snow every day. And we did but I didn't do that. So there you go. It doesn't even snow anymore. Well, that's only for you. People in Michigan listening to this right now are probably like, uh, screw all of you guys. We have got like 15 yeah, feet of snow. Okay. So we're at the hour mark here. Adam, I, I want to give you, you know, a few moments here to tell us in in your own words about the future for this sport for this sport as bike racing as a whole, you just went through the USA cycling, you know, coaching summit. What do we have to look forward to in 2023 and beyond? Where do you think we're going? I think my experience with USA cycling in the many years I've been a part of it is, is very analogous to a lot of people in that it's a lot of frustration and it's a lot of almost anger in a way you know, pointing the finger and saying it's those guys' fault. And that's, that's true. Um, and, and, but at this summit for the first time personally, uh, it seemed like USA cycling as a whole had a 
had a lot more empathy towards what their membership was going through. And they had a lot of good ideas about how to grow the participation of the sport and then also to improve, improve the experience that members have when they're at events. And I, I've never heard that before. That said, we'll have to see. And, and if it doesn't play out that way, I'm gonna be really sad. Because, you know, you can only, how many times can you hear these, these like great things coming down the line and it doesn't happen before you just like lose all, all faith. And uh, I mean, I, I, I believe what they're saying at this point. Happy to be part of it. Well, thank you, Adam, so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the show. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium Network of Shows. We are restarting the Criterion Nation Chronicle, our newsletter over on Substack. Go become a subscriber. We'll be putting out more race type results sort of posts there. We'll be putting out long form articles discussing issues like, I don't know, the American Criterion Cup calendar or what it's going to take to train for Criterion racing during the winter. Seven questions with, which is going to be a new thing where we start featuring athletes and asking them seven lifestyle questions so that you can get to know them more as human beings and less as just the really fast people on bikes. Go to Substack, subscribe. You'll get everything delivered to you in your mailbox. Today's show was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. We will be back in two weeks with the final episode of the season, the final episode of the year since 2022 is just about to end. So come back, join us again very soon for more stories from our Criterium Nation. <laughs>